It's so good to have you with us as we celebrate the, the Christ child and looking at the, the manger. It's magnificence and it's a place of mystery and understanding it's a place of majesty simply because of the power of God's providence. It's a place of mystery simply because it's about the precision of God's prophecy. And they all come together in the manger in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. And so we're looking at the manger, trying to make it simple for you by spelling out the word, spelling out the word manger and showing you the points that center around its majesty and its mystery. And last week we used the letter M, and we said it was a place of mercy as well as a place of ministry. Nothing's more merciful than for God to send his son to this earth for Mercy is not something that you achieve, it's something that you receive, and it's the Son that was given to us, Isaiah 9, verse number 6. So we talked about that last week. And then we said it's a place of mystery, because, uh, excuse me, a place of, of ministry, simply because when the angels came to the shepherds, they said, for unto you this day in the city of David has been born a Savior, a Savior, because that's his ministry. He came to deliver, he came to redeem, he came to save, and that's the ministry of our Lord. And, and, you know, at Christmas time, we begin to learn about the mercy and ministry of Christ when we begin to show mercy and to minister to others. Because how do you know you've, you've really grasped the merciful God? You extend mercy to others because you've received mercy. And how do you know that you understand the, the ministry of God as a Savior and a deliverer? Well, you minister to others because the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's the, that's the M words, mercy and ministry. Next letter is authority. The manger is a place of supreme authority. How do we know that? Well, when the angel said, this day in the city of David has born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Lord, kurios, is a word that deals with authority, dominion, and rule. So the shepherds knew that this Messiah, born in Bethlehem, was the supreme ruler with all authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, Christ said that in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He has all authority. Because he is the authoritative one. In fact, when the angel came to Mary in Luke chapter 1, the angel said this. He said, in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So Mary would understand that the Christ child would be the all-authoritative one of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, where the government will rest on his shoulders. And with him, there will be no end of peace. Why? Because he will be the ruler of this world. He'll have dominion over this world. Why? Because he is the Lord of all. That means he has supreme authority. You can only have all authority if you are almighty. 
And he is called the mighty God in Isaiah 9, verse number 6. In Genesis 49, he's called the mighty one. Psalm 132, he's called the mighty one of Jacob. And Mary in her song in Luke 1 would refer to God as the mighty one of Jacob. You see, he is the almighty God of the universe. In fact, in the book of Revelation, he's called the almighty the Pantocrator, used nine times in the book of Revelation, ten times in the New Testament, to show us the power of the Son of God. He is the Almighty King with all authority. In fact, when Pilate said, don't you know I have authority to kill you? And Jesus said to him, you have no authority over me unless it's been granted to you from above. You see, we like to think we have authority. We like to think we're in charge of something, right? But in all reality, you're in charge of nothing because you have no authority. God has all the authority. He is the ruler of the world. And yet we think that somehow we have our little piece of authority in this arena or that arena. But in all reality, we don't. So we have to trust in the all-authoritative one, the king of the universe. In fact, Christ said in Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18, that I am the first and the last. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys. Well, if you got the, if you got the keys, you're, you're in charge. If you hold the keys, you're, you have the authority. He has authority over death. He has authority over Hades. In other words, he has authority over the condition of man and the place where man will go. That's authority. In fact, in in John 5, he says that he has authority, that all in the graves will one day hear his voice and will all rise. That's authority, to speak and everybody responds, right? The dead respond. He speaks and the dead are raised, some to life everlasting and some to eternal damnation. But because he has all authority, when he speaks, people respond. They can't help but respond because he's the king of the universe. He had authority over death. He had authority when he lived over demons. He had authority over disease. He has authority over man's destiny. He has authority over everything because he's the Lord of the universe. And so the manger's a place, a place of authority where you come and bow in submission to the king of glory. The shepherds would come and they would bow before him. The magi would come and they would bow before him. Why? Because they recognized that he was the all-authoritative Lord of the universe. But not only is it a place of authority. Note this. It's a place of adversity. And we know that best as you look at Revelation chapter 12. And so, Tristan, if you would key the slide for me and let me picture for you what the real manger looks like that there's a dragon over the child. How do we know that? Revelation 12 tells us. It's very clear. It says this, And the dragon, who is Satan, right? Who, in Revelation, he has seven heads and seven diadems and ten horns. I don't, couldn't find a picture of that, so we just threw that one up there. But still, it's, 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 it's a dragon. And it says, He stood before the woman who was about to give birth. The woman is Israel. So that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. You see, we forget. 
Because at Christmas, in the infancy of the child, we forget about his authority, his deity, and his glory. And we forget about all the adversity that surrounds the child. We like to think of the Christ child as a, as a newborn babe. And you, you've seen newborn babes, and, and when you hold the, uh, the child in your arms, it's, it's, you wrap it up, it's so cute, you're so excited, you, you're overflowing with joy, right? But, but the reality is this, that the child that you give birth to is dead in their trespasses and sins. They're a, kingdom, they're a part of the kingdom of darkness. They have to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. That precious little child that you hold on to is in bondage to Satan. We forget that. That's why they need to be born again, right? Born again. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. And you die for eternity. Die physically, and you die eternally. So you must be born again, right? That's why we present the gospel to people. Say, know about the truth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But we forget about all that when, when the child's born. Well, the same is true with the, with the Christ child. We forget about all the adversity that surrounded the birth of Christ. In fact, all the way back, Satan has always tried to destroy the plan of God. He wants to thwart God's plan. He can't. Why? Because God is all authority. He is almighty. He is the El Gabor of Matthew 9, I mean Isaiah 9, verse number 6, the, the mighty God. So Satan has to ask permission to do anything. He just can't act on his own. He is subject to the king of the universe. But he always tries to thwart the plan of God. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, book of Ezekiel, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar are both called and referred to as a dragon. Why? Because they were used by Satan to thwart the plan of God. Pharaoh was used by Satan to try to destroy the nation of Israel so they could not reproduce, so they would not have any more children. That's why they killed the, the little boys and threw them in the Nile River to destroy a nation and its future. That was all Satan's plan. Ultimately, he had to get permission from God, but that was Satan's plan. When Christ was born, what did Herod do? When he realized that the Magi didn't come back and tell him about the Christ child and where he was, he, did, he knew that there was probably around two years from when the Magi arrived so that he killed and slaughtered all the children two years and younger. He did that. Why? Because Satan was over the manger. It's a place of adversity. He wanted to destroy the Christ child. But he couldn't because the angel came to Joseph and Mary, moved them to Egypt until Herod died, then moved them back again. When Christ was baptized, he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And one of those temptations, and all of them centered around bypassing the cross, that he would throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, and he misquoted Psalm 91 and said that you can use your angels because they'll have charge over you and they'll protect you, but knew that if he threw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, he would die. And therefore, he would not die on the cross for the sins of the world. Instead, he would die in a different way. That was Satan's plan. The dragon tried to destroy the Messiah. Luke chapter 4. He was in his own hometown, preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. And what happened? They tried to run him out. And they ran him out, and they wanted to throw him off the cliff there in Nazareth. 
many of you who've been to Israel with me have been to that place, that cliff that would probably possibly be that place where they would throw him off to kill him because they didn't want him to to survive. They were so infuriated with him. That was a plan of Satan. The adversity of Satan to destroy the Christ child. And then of course, as you know, all throughout his life, he was rejected and came against by the enemies. In fact, many times in scripture, it was said that Herod wanted to kill him because he did. And so all those things come together and we realize that, that the true picture of the nativity is this red dragon, according to Revelation 12, that's over the nativity, that's over the throne, that he might devour the child. And I've told you many times over that if you have a nativity in your front yard, it must have this. Or you misrepresent the nativity to your neighbor's. They don't get it. It's just a nice little baby in the manger to them. See, they don't understand that Satan wants to destroy the Christ child. In fact, he knows Genesis 3.15. He can read Genesis 3.15. He knows that the seed's going to crush the serpent's head. It's exactly what he's going to do. And so if he can get Christ to bypass the cross, if he can kill him before he gets there, he wins. But he can't win. Because he's not the all-authoritative one. Christ is. So please note that when you celebrate the majesty and the mystery of the cross, it's all about his authority and all about the adversity that was around the birth of the Christ child. Next letter is N. That represents nobility. The major is a place of nobility. Christ was of royal descent. He was of the highest descent. He was the king of Israel. And yet, surrounding that are many, many issues and many problems that most people never really truly understand or get. So let me see if I can point them out to you to show you the majesty as well as the mystery of the manger. If you go back to Genesis chapter 49, the Bible tells us in verse number 10, as Jacob gives this prophecy to his boys, he foretells the future by telling them what's going to happen in their line. He says of Judah in chapter, 10, uh, chapter uh, 49, verse number 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Messiah is Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs. What belongs to the Messiah? The scepter. He's the king. And so we know from Jacob's prophecy, not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the king of Judah. He's the king of Israel. He's the king that will come. And so the prophecy is given by Jacob that through Judah, the lion of Judah will come the Messiah. But there's a major problem with that because Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, also wrote the book of Deuteronomy. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he writes these words in Deuteronomy 23, verse number 2, which he had to scratch his head over because it says this, 
No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So Moses saying, wait a minute. Judah had committed immorality. He had committed adultery in Genesis 38. And yet the prophecy was given that the King Messiah will come through the line of Judah. Yet, he will not come until at least the 10th generation. So Moses knows that in his day, Messiah is not going to come, although he's anticipating the Messiah. He even writes about it in number 24, verse number 7, 17. Then a star will rise out of Jacob, right? A scepter in his hands. Yet he knows it won't happen until at least the 10th generation because the line's been cursed. And God says, no one will enter the assembly of the Lord. So... All you have to do is read the book of Matthew and realize that the 10th generation from Judah is David, King David. And the curse was lifted. And so King David now becomes the one in the line of Judah where the Messiah will come, and the Messiah will be called a son of David. He's a son of God. He's a son of man. He's a son of righteousness, but he's going to be the son of David. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us. God gave what is called the Davidic covenant. He gave it to David. He said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the Davidic covenant. The psalmist would reiterate that in Psalm 89 when he said, But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as a son before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. God reiterates his his covenant with David. That no matter what happens, a son of David will sit on the throne of Israel and will rule forever. So every Israelite is anticipating a descendant of David to sit on the throne. They all would be doing this. Of course they would. He'd be the king that would come. And then all of a sudden, as they're about to go into captivity, Jeremiah says this to the nation. He says in Jeremiah 22, verse number 30, Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. What man? Well, Coniah or Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. He has three names. That's another story in and of itself. But his name's Coniah. Write this man down as childless. Now, it doesn't mean he's not going to have any children, because he does. He has seven of them. But write them down as childless. He says this. A man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Whoa. Wait a minute. How can that be? God just cursed the line of Judah. No descendant of Judah will sit on the throne of David. Because of the sins of Coniah and the, sub, and, and the previous sins of all the succeeding ki- kings, 
But because of his sin, his line is cursed. So no descendant of Judah, and Coniah was a descendant of Judah, will sit on the throne of David or rule in Israel. That's a problem. How do you handle that? And so in the very next chapter, Jeremiah is writing in the inspiration of God, and God says this, declares the Lord, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, well, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And the word branch, netzir, is the Hebrew word that speaks about the coming Messiah. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And they've got to be thinking, how can that be? He just cursed the line of Judah. But God is going to raise up a righteous branch that will rule over Judah. How's that going to happen? In Jeremiah 31, he repeats it. No natural son from the line of Judah will reign as king of Israel. But a supernatural son would reign as king of Israel. So how does God handle this? Well, same book, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, I didn't say this in the first service, so you get to get it in the second service. In Jeremiah 31, Israel is mourning. They're mourning their captivity. They're mourning they're not going to have any more hope. But God gives them hope. He says, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, verse 17. And your children will return to their own territory. There is hope for you. You're going to mourn. You're going to weep. You're going to be in captivity. But you're going to return, and there will be joy. And then he says this in verse number 22. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. He's created something that's never been seen before and never been done before. He's going to create something, bara, out of nothing. A woman will encompass a man. That phrase, interpreted by every rabbi before the time of Christ, said that that meant the Messiah would have no earthly father that a woman shall encompass a man, one of two ways, either hold a man in her arms or encompass him, her, him excuse me, in her womb. And it says it'll encompass a man, not a, not a normal man, not an ordinary man, because the word is geber, which is used later in the next chapter to speak of the mighty God. This is a valiant man. This is a mighty man, not just a normal man, but a mighty man. So God's letting them know there's going to be something supernatural that's going to take place, something that's, that's going to come that is going to it'd be supernatural and not natural. He's trying to help them to connect the dots as to what God's going to do because there is going to be a seed of a woman all the way back to the book of Genesis, the third chapter, the 15th verse. A seed of a woman that will crush the serpent's head. The very first prophecy about the arrival of the Messiah. And the important thing about that is that never in the history of the world has a woman ever had a seed. The man carries a seed, not the woman. 
but the woman will have a seed. And that means that for the first time in the history of the world, there will be a virgin birth. And so the golden thread of the Savior coming is woven all throughout the Old Testament. So even in the book of Jeremiah, God says, no natural man from this line will ever rule in Judah, will ever be king of Israel. And then the very next chapter, but yet a righteous branch is going to come. He will rule in Israel. He'll be called the Lord our righteousness. Well, how's that going to be? It's going to be supernatural. It's going to be unique. It's going to be beyond anything they could ever imagine. So, if you read Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is a descendant of Coniah. Joseph, if the curse wouldn't have happened, would have been the king of Israel. He would have been the king. But he couldn't be the king because the line was cursed. So how do you get around that? You see, Joseph is the descendant of David through Solomon, the kingly line. You get around that by a virgin birth through a woman named Mary who also is the descendant of David, but not through Solomon, but through a son, Nathan. That's found in Luke chapter 3. And so when you understand the genealogy of Mary, you realize that she's in the royal line. She's in the royal line because she's the descendant of David. And yet legally, legally, she couldn't have a son naturally and him be on the throne because Joseph wasn't on the throne. So it had to be a supernatural birth, a virgin birth. And through that virgin birth, he would become the king because he'd be adopted by Joseph. Therefore, he'd be a legal heir to the throne as well as a natural heir to the throne through Mary. A legal heir through Joseph, a natural and royal line through Mary. See that? God answers all the questions. But you have to read. You have to study. You have to learn. Because God is showing you the majesty and the mystery of the manger. It goes way beyond anything we can ever imagine. We're not masters of the Old Testament. We're not Jewish people. We're not reading what is written in the Old Testament and mastering those words. But they had to scratch their heads and wonder, how is this going to be? And God told them it's going to be supernatural. Isaiah 7, verse number 14. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child. You shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And so they began to put the pieces together. The shepherds did. Shepherds got it. They were the lowest on the economic pole. Lowest of all lowest. And yet they understood the Old Testament. So when the angel said, hey, there's a Savior born for you this day in the city of David. He's Christ the Lord. They don't say, who? Christ the who? They don't ask the questions. They drop everything and run in haste because they know their Old Testament. They know the Messiah would come. They know where he'd be born. And all that comes together for you in the manger. That's why it's a place of majesty and a place of mystery. Not simply because it's a, it's a place of mercy and ministry or because it's a place of authority and adversity, but because it's a place of nobility. 
as well as necessity. Necessity. This is the way it had to be. Why? When Christ came, he came to ratify his prophecy. All the things written about him, he confirmed. Now, we know he didn't ratify every single prophecy about his coming because only 224 of the 333 were uh, fulfilled in his first coming, leaving 190 to be fulfilled in his second coming. But when he came, he ratified prophecy. The prophecy about where he'd be born, how he'd be born, all the things surrounding his birth, that was all confirmed. So when Christ came, he ratified his prophecy. When Christ came, he revealed his deity. Christ is God in the flesh. He is the mighty God of Isaiah 9, verse number 6. He is the eternal Father, the originator of eternity of Isaiah 9, verse number 6. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the wonderful Counselor. That's who he is. He's God in the flesh. In fact, over in Isaiah chapter 43, you can read this. Where God says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Well, Israel knows that. But when Jesus was born, he was the Savior of the world. You're going to call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the God of Isaiah 43, 11. It says in Isaiah 43, 14, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Lord God says, I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverer. Galatians 3, verse number 13 says, Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus is our deliverer. So which is true? Answer, yes, Jesus is God. It says over in verse number 15 of Isaiah 43, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. God says, I'm your king. I'm your creator. Well, the Messiah, Jesus, was the creator. John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He created everything. Read it in Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. It's all right there. He created everything. Why? Because He is the Creator. He is God in the flesh. He's also the King of glory because the Bible says He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. That's who He is. He's the King of glory. So just taking one chapter in the Old Testament... Isaiah 43, you realize when God speaks, he speaks defining who he is. When Christ comes, he is the fulfillment of all that God is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because he's the exact representation of the Father. Hebrews 1, verse number 3 tells us. So when Christ came, he didn't ratify his, his prophecy. He didn't reveal his deity. He came to ravage the enemy. 1 John 3, verse number 8. The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Wow. That's why the major such a necessity. He appeared for this purpose, to ravage the enemy, to crush the serpent's head. And that's exactly what he did. And then it says in 1 John 3, verse number 5, the Son of Man appeared for this purpose, that he might remove your sin. In other words, he came to remove your iniquity. That's what he came to do. And the only way to do that was to be born, live, and die on Calvary's cross and rise again as Lamb of God. 
So he came to ratify his prophecy. He came to reveal his deity, ravage the enemy. He came to remove your iniquity. He came to restore man's dignity. 1 John 3, verse number 1. Oh, what manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. John, the disciple whom the Lord loved, that's how he refers to himself in John's gospel, he says, what other worldly kind of love is this? It's from another dimension. It's not from this dimension. It's not, it's not an earthly kind of love. It's a heavenly kind of love. What manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? In other words, we were, we were born children of the devil. We were born dead in our trespasses and sin. But when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and gave our life to him, we were transferred from that kingdom into God's kingdom, the kingdom of his dear son, and became children of the living God. And John says, oh, what manner of love is this? So when the Son of Man appeared, when he came in all of his splendor and glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his mystery, we came to ratify his prophecy. He came simply to reveal his deity, to ravage the enemy, to remove your iniquity, to restore your dignity, so that he would return in glory, in all of his splendor and majesty, because on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he comes back, every eye will see him, right? Every eye will see him. When he was born, only a few saw him. But when he arrives again, every eye will see him, for his glory will fill the sky. He'll come back in all of his majestic glory. He'll return in glory. And number seven, he will reign for eternity on the throne of his father David. Why did Jesus come? That's why he came. That's why the manger is such a place of necessity. It's everything. We need Christ to be born. We need a Savior. We need our sins removed. We need our dignity restored. We need Satan to be destroyed. We need a king who reigns forever. That's what we need. And Christ is that. That's why the manger is such a necessity. Because wrapped up in swaddling clothes is the gift of eternal life. Thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. In other words, you can't describe it in normal terms. You can't describe it in natural terms. Why? Because it's indescribable. It's incomparable. It's inexplicable. Because it goes beyond anything we can ever imagine. And that's why the manger is so important. That's why we come to worship at the feet of our Savior and bow before him because in his infancy, he was all deity, all authority. Yes, he was all humanity. Yes, he was. But he's the king of glory. And we bow before him in humble submission that we might worship and adore his glorious name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and the opportunity you give us to study your word. What a joy. What a blessing. So much is there. So much to, to digest. Yet to realize, Father, that you came for man. 
You came into your own, and your own received you not. They rejected you. Yet the Bible says to as many as received him, to them give you power to become the sons of God. We pray, Father, that if there's someone here today that has yet to embrace the Christ child, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Lord of all, that today would be their day. That they would understand that giving their life to Christ gives them eternal life. Not just quantity of life, but absolute quality of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.